think that what Job's doing is just kind of scraping himself, trying to get some relief while he sat in the ashes. And so we have this before us here, and there are some things here that I want to show you about suffering as we try to make sense of suffering. And the first one is this. There are some things that we are given to know about suffering. The Bible does tell us some things very clearly that we can know about what God is is doing in suffering. Now, if you look throughout the rest of the Scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, like Romans 5, 1 Peter 1, James chapter 1, you'll see some very specific things God does in our lives through suffering, forming character, uh, showing our faith to be genuine, that kind of thing. Um, But those texts aren't before us today. Before us is Job chapter 2, and here in Job chapter 2, what we learn more of is what suffering is not. Job 2 kind of corrects some of our misunderstandings about what suffering actually is. So by the way of negative statements, we're going to learn a little bit about what suffering is about. First of all, suffering is not necessarily payback for sin. It's very common, isn't it, for us to believe when we suffer, bad things happen, we think it's because of that thing I did back in college or the thing that I did last week and God is getting me back. Now, the reason I say necessarily there is because there is a sense in which all suffering results from the fall of man in the garden. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and that's when evil and suffering and pain and sin was brought into the world. And so, in a broad sense, I guess we can say suffering uh, is, uh, is connected to, to sin in that way. But there is much suffering in our personal lives that is not directly related to some specific sin that we have committed. And you can see that very clearly here because look at verse 3. We see the description of Job. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth? He is blameless. He is upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. I mean, very clearly in this book, the suffering that Job is experiencing is not payback for some sin that he committed. This is a righteous man. This is a godly man. This is a man that many have admired. This is a man close to God. And so, friends, this is maybe kind of a troubling thought, but Being close to God does not mean you're going to be free from suffering, and the fact that you're suffering doesn't mean you're not close to God. Job is a righteous man, and yet he's suffering. There's a story in John chapter 9 that kind of illustrates this. Jesus and the disciples are coming along in a city, and they see a blind man. And the disciples ask Jesus, they say, why is this man blind? Is it because of a sin he committed or a sin that his parents committed? You know, in the disciples' mind, those are the only two options. If he's suffering, it must be because of something they did. And Jesus corrects them and says, no, it's neither. It's to display the work of God. That God's glory somehow is going to be displayed through this man's blindness. It's not because of something wrong that he did. So suffering is not necessarily payback for sin. Secondly, suffering is not exclusively the work of the devil. So this is another common assumption that we make. We think all suffering, pain, and evil in the world is only the devil's work, and God is kind of a bystander just kind of watching it happen. But that's certainly not the case based on this passage. The devil is 
very clearly involved. Obviously, if you look at verse 7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with the loathsome sores. So, yeah, Satan is at work here. But how does Satan get involved? Look at verse 1. Look what happens. Second part of verse 1. Satan came among them to present himself before the Lord. Satan has got to go to God first to get permission for anything he's going to do. And if you look at verse 6, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Satan could not do anything unless God gave him permission to do it. We shouldn't picture Satan and God as if they're two kind of rivals kind of battling for good and evil in the universe, equal powers, you know, like Cleveland and Golden State in the NBA Finals, which we all know is going to happen here in a little while. Like there's two rival powers trying to win. That's not the way you should picture God and Satan. Satan, the devil, is God's devil. The devil reports to God, and the devil only does what God allows him to do. Now, we don't want to say that God does evil, Notice, who is it that actually inflicts the sores on Job? It's Satan. So we, we don't want to blame God for evil, but we also don't want to act like God is not involved somehow. That, that's not what this passage is teaching. The third thing we see is this. Suffering is not a random, purposeless accident. I mean, if you hold to kind of an evolutionary Darwinian way of looking at things, that's kind of how you have to see violence. It's just this kind of accidental random thing that has just been happening over the course of human history with no direction or purpose. But here again in the passage, chapter 2, verse 3, what does it say? The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? I mean, that's kind of a disturbing verse, isn't it? But what we're learning here is that Satan is allowed to inflict suffering on Job because God directed him to. Have you considered Job? And off Satan goes. And, and you see that, that Job actually believes this. If you look at verse 10, look how Job deals with this. When his wife tells him to curse God and die, in verse 10 he says, you speak like a foolish person. Look what he says, verse 10. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Should we just, when good things happen, say, oh, thank God, but when bad things happen, act like it has no purpose or no intention in the mind of God? Job says they both, good and evil, they both come, they both fall under the sovereign sway and direction of Almighty God. And that last phrase there just shows us, and all this Job did not sin. It was not a sin for Job to say that we should receive evil from God. Now, it's at this point that people get really kind of disturbed and, and troubled. And this is where a lot of people stumble here. And here's the common reasoning that people use. They say, well, if, if, if God were good, if he were really good, he wouldn't allow suffering. He wouldn't allow it in my life. Sometimes we become Christians, we decide to devote ourselves to God, we find that life gets hard, and we think, wait a minute, I thought God was good and was going to make my life happy. And then we find out it's not quite so happy, and from there we begin to reason, well, if God isn't as good as I thought he was, or if he doesn't 
keep suffering away from me like I thought he would. Maybe he's not even there. And many people come to be atheists over this particular issue. I just cannot conceive of how a good God would allow suffering. And so they remove God from the picture. Now, if that's you, or maybe you're toying with that idea, you're flirting with that, I don't know if I want to believe in this God anymore, given the things that are going on in my life. I I would just ask you this. What... What good will it do to remove God from the picture? I mean, let's say you disbelieve God. Okay, you're an atheist now. All right, fine. Do people still suffer? Yes. Does evil still exist? Yes. The problem doesn't get any easier when you try to take God out of it. And by taking God out of it, now you have no resources by which you can even begin to explain or make sense of what is happening. I've just never understood why people want to become atheists and remove God because they can't conceive of how God would allow suffering. In the Christian worldview, what the Bible teaches here in Job and many other places is that God is good and righteous and holy and there is no blemish in His character whatsoever and yet He has in His wisdom written suffering into his story. He he has planned it to be this way. In his wisdom, God has decreed that there's something about human history and a story with suffering in it that is better than a story without suffering. Somehow God is up to something good in the suffering that he decrees. Now, you might say, how can this be? Well, you know, actually, you think about it for just a moment. It's not too hard to think of an example of how this happens. My sister, for instance, has a daughter, my niece, who is terrified of going to the dentist. I mean, this isn't like just nervous about going to the dentist. This is traumatized about going to the dentist. She doesn't want to go. She cries. They have to be so careful about how they announce this to her. But you know what? My sister makes sure she goes to the dentist. Does that make her a bad mom? I mean, there's a sense in which she is bringing suffering into her daughter's life. Does it make her a bad mom? Does it, in fact, make her a good mom? That she does it anyway for the good of her daughter? I I think we know the answer. A good mom... A good parent doesn't step back from bringing suffering into their children's lives in certain cases. And God is the same way. Greg Kokel says it like this, trouble, hardship, difficulty, pain, suffering, conflict, tragedy, evil, they're all part of the story. It's the reason there is any story at all. The story not only explains the evil people do, it predicts it. Our world is exactly the kind of world we'd expect it to be if the story were true and not just religious wishful thinking. When when you see the story in the Bible of a God who actually allows suffering, and then we look at the way the world is, you got to say, they match up pretty well. Because the world is a place full of suffering, and it's exactly what the Bible is describing for us as the way things are. So, So there are some things here we're given to know about suffering, but... We have to hold this in balance with the second thing. There are some things we are not given to know about suffering. There are some things that God holds back from us. 
Again, sometimes we know why suffering takes place. The adulterer who loses his family, he's suffering, but we know why. He cheated on his wife. Or the smoker who gets, you know, lifelong smoker who gets lung cancer. I mean, he's suffering, but we have a pretty good idea why. But sometimes we don't know. Why one person is single and another person is happily married? Why? We don't know. Why one mother loses a child and another doesn't? We don't know. One man sitting in a wheelchair, another riding his bike, playing basketball, jogging every day. Why? We don't know. And there's something very clear in the story of Job about God's right to reserve, to hold back things that he doesn't want to reveal to us right now. The secret things belong to the Lord, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 29. What we find, if you read the rest of Job, is that we've seen here his suffering in chapters 1 and 2. And what we find out by the end of the book is that God never lets him know while he's suffering. Never explains it to him. Never says, hey, Job, just want you to let you know Satan came to me and I wanted to show that you were a godly man who would praise me and cling to me even in suffering, so I allowed Satan to inflict suffering, so thanks for being a good sport all this time. You know, we, we, don't, we don't see that. God never lets Job in on what's going on. And that's a hard thing to deal with, isn't it? I mean, suffering is bad enough, but sometimes what makes it worse is the fact that we, we don't know why it's happening. And what we find here in the story of Job is that it's not necessary to know why everything has happened to us in order for us to be faithful, godly, righteous people. Because Job is a righteous man, and, and he never knows. And some of us think, until I know, I'm not going to serve God. Well, Job is a man who persevered, uh, even through his ignorance of what God was doing. But here's what happens at the end of this passage, verses 11 through 13. Onto the scene now come Job's friends. And Job's friends notice Job's suffering. And so they come to him here, and verses 11 through 13, these friends do it exactly right when it comes to how to minister to somebody who's going through suffering. Um, look, look what happens here. Verse 11, it says they come, at the end of verse 11, they come, why? To show him sympathy. They come to comfort him. Look at verse 12. What do they do with him? They raise their voices. You know, that would have been more common in that kind of culture uh, in the midst of suffering. To raise their voices. They wept. They cried. They shed tears with Job. And then in verse 13, very important. They sat with him on the ground seven days, seven nights, and no one spoke a word. They were just there with Job. They were just with him. Now, if this book were to end right here, we'd have a great example from these friends. Problem is, the book goes on. And the rest of the book just shows Job's friends just messing it up at every turn. And the reason they were messing it up is that they were trying to get a hold of something that God hadn't given them to know. They were trying to figure out something that wasn't given to them to figure out. They were trying to pretend that they were in possession of some truth that God didn't give to them. And they just couldn't stand the fact that they couldn't figure it out. And friends, there are just times when we can't, we can't figure it out. 
We don't know. And it does a sufferer no good for you to come in there and try to sort them out and set them straight and get their theology right. That doesn't help. What they want is someone who gives them sympathy, someone who weeps with them, and in many cases, someone who doesn't say a word. There's a great example of this in a movie that I will not mention because I don't want anybody to think I'm necessarily recommending it. Um, but in this movie, there's this scene where a family is in a car and uh, the brother <clears throat> becomes just distraught about something and he's, he's raising his voice and he's just so worked up. So the father stops the car, he gets out and he runs down the hill and he sits down and just bows his head and he's just in misery. And he has a little sister, she's probably six or seven years old, and they show her, she gets out of the car and she runs down the hill and she sits next to her brother and just leans her head on his shoulder. And you just see the scene, the scene. they're just, just sitting there for a little while. And then the brother gets up and, and he's better. He feels better. And they walk back up the hill and they get in the car. And sometimes, friends, that's, that's the wisest and best thing we can do. Come alongside. Keep our mouths shut. But here's the reasoning that sometimes comes from the fact that God has not given us to know everything about suffering. Sometimes we say this, well, if I can't know the reason for suffering, then there must not be any good reason. Isn't this the way sometimes we think? I, I just, it seems inexplicable to me why this would happen. And so since I can't get a handle on why this is happening, there, there must not be a good reason. And if there isn't a good reason, maybe God isn't good and maybe he doesn't even exist. So again, it's very easy to kind of get into this succession of, of reasoning. But, but think of it this way. Must we, must we conclude that there is no good reason if we can't figure out what that reason is? This is kind of a very simple illustration, kind of simplistic, but I, I think it makes the point. If I were to ask you today, is there an elephant in this room? All of you would be able to determine the answer to that question right away. The answer is no. It's easy to find out. We look around, no elephant. But if I were to ask you, is there a flea in this room? Well, now it's a little harder. And you might get on your hands and knees and crawl all around this room for hours looking for a flea. And you might not find it. But if I came back to you and, say, and asked you, does that mean there's no flea in the room? you would have to say, I, I can't really say that. I couldn't find the flea, but it might be in there. And, and the same thing is true here. Just because you can't discern, because you can't figure out any good reason why you might be suffering, doesn't mean there isn't a good reason. In God's wisdom, in God's grace. Greg Kokel again says it like this. I'm not saying that evil can be good but rather that there may be good reasons to allow bad things. Allowing some evil for a time, for example, may result in a better world in the long run than a world that never had evil to begin with. And that's just something, friends, we have to take on faith. That God is up to something that is going to be wonderful in the end when Jesus comes again. And we long for that time to come. And so that leads us to the third point here, which is to consider the gospel. 
and how the gospel itself helps us make sense of suffering. No, no other worldview or philosophy that I've been able to investigate really makes any kind of good sense of suffering than the gospel. And the gospel doesn't answer all of our questions about suffering, but it goes a long way in helping us make sense of it. And, and, though, and, and even though we might make sense of it, and even though we might come to know some things, I want to be very clear about this, even though we might know some things about suffering, it, it never blunts the pain of it. Suffering always hurts. It's kind of like jumping into a lake. You know, you're getting ready to jump in, and you know how much discomfort you're going to get when you jump in the lake. You know it's cold, and in your head you have that knowledge, but when you jump in the lake, every time it takes your breath away. And suffering is like that. No matter what you know about it, no matter how much correct theology you have about it, it always takes your breath away. That's what Job's friends were doing, raising their voices and, and weeping. So, how do we deal with it? What hope is there? Well, in this passage, Job is said to be blameless, right? Verse 3. Now, the question that is often asked in response to that is, does that mean that Job was sinless? Does that mean Job never sinned? Was he a perfect person? And the answer to that is no. It doesn't mean that he was sinless. If you look throughout the rest of the book of Job, you'll see various places where Job acknowledges his transgression and his iniquity. What it means to say that Job is blameless is just simply to say that his life was characterized by a pattern of godliness. That's what it is to be blameless. He was a good man, humanly speaking. Not sinless, but a good man. But what Job didn't know, and what you and I do know, because we have the New Testament, is that later, many centuries after Job, there would come a truly innocent sufferer, someone who was really sinless, someone who was perfect, someone who never offended God, never disobeyed God, and yet someone who suffered like no one else ever did in the history of the world. And that person is described for us in Isaiah 53. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, he was acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and, griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. We know who this is talking about. This is the Lord Jesus Christ the truly innocent suffering, one who never did anything wrong and yet suffered horribly, terribly on the cross, hanging there, bleeding, bearing the sins of his people. And there's Jesus, abandoned by his father. Job, you know, thought he was abandoned by God, and we find out at the end of the book he wasn't, but Jesus really was, really, truly was abandoned by his father. On the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason Jesus lived that perfect life, and the reason that he suffered like he did, and the reason that he endured this abandonment from the Father is so that you would never have to face that kind of suffering. Friends, I don't know what kind of suffering you're dealing with. <clears throat> everybody hurts. Everybody here is carrying a burden. I know that. And I'm not trying to minimize that. 
And I know you're dealing with burdens that have taken your breath away. But friends, there is no suffering worse than that which a person has to face when he or she dies and goes into the next life apart from Jesus. There is no suffering like the eternal suffering, punishment, condemnation, and torment that people will experience in hell if they don't come to place faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a suffering that Jesus has gone the whole way to deliver you from. In doing these things that were described centuries before, being wounded for your transgressions, being crushed for your iniquities. And friends, what we get is this wonderful promise from Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is a glory coming, friends, one day for those who are trusting in Jesus, those looking to Him. And if you don't know Jesus today, you can know Him by turning from your sin and just receiving Him by faith today. And we'll hear more about that as we come to the table in just a moment. Friends, I know, I know this doesn't answer all of our questions about suffering, but clinging to Jesus, seeing a truly righteous sufferer, one who endured that suffering out of love for sinners, is enough to give us the grace to say in all of our sufferings, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord.